Hello, and welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Claire. I'm Allie. And today we are talking about monarchy, as usual. And uh, before we get going, quick technical note. Um, I did want to apologize if the sound quality is a little off this week. My microphone broke five minutes ago, so. Um, I might have broken it. Uh. <laughs> Desperate times. I'm just using the one on my laptop, which is not going to sound nearly as good. But you know what? We try to make it work. So um, just, you know, if you're listening and it sounds a little bit echoey, that's that's what that is. And you might get a little bit more ambient noise, but. Yeah, we didn't want to not record because yeah. we skipped the holiday times. So we're the a little bit must, behind. <laughs> the show must go on. So, yeah. um, but today we are continuing with our series on deposed monarchs and we are going to tackle Charles I. It's like the ultimate would it be called deposition or yeah, it's the ultimate, <laughs> it's the ultimate overthrow in British history. Um, it's going to be really fascinating to talk about. It will be, you know, it's funny. I was laughing because, and you'll probably get into this a little bit, um, but like our previous ones were all very like under the table, like s- killing them in secret and like, oh, just conk them on the head. And like, this is not that. <laughs> this is pretty overt. <laughs> Before I know we have a little bit of gossip to cover, but before we get to that, I have a minor royal oops to talk about, and then I want to talk about our trip to London that we just did, because we did visit the Tower of London, which is directly pertinent to last episode, and I also visited Westminster Abbey, which was also really cool, so I thought we might talk about that for a little bit, just because um, I found all of that really, really fascinating. So... The first royal oops that I have is that it is, in fact, the yeoman of the ward. Yes. I just want to take credit for that. I want everybody we to walked know that Claire whirled around and turned to me and said, I was right. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a sign that said, by order of the yeoman of the ward. And I was like, well, would you look at that? It's yeoman of the ward. Um, so that was fun. And then we did actually, they do have the staircase. Um, highlighted where they found the bodies of the two children that are thought to be the princes in the tower. So that's really interesting. Um, I found out a little bit more about those bodies while we were there. So, of course, as we talked about last time, they've never been tested. Um, They were discovered, I believe it was... um, during the time of Charles II, when they actually discovered their bodies. And yeah, then it was they like did 1600-something. Yes, and then they were re-examined in the early 19th century, but they've never been DNA tested, as we talked about. And generally, the consensus is that it is the boys, mainly because the bodies that were found were wearing velvet, which would have been highly unusual for anyone not of the upper, upper, upper echelon class to be wearing at the time. So your average tower... In, inmate probably wouldn't be wearing velvet and certainly not a child. Um, and there, you know, there just weren't that many children interred in the tower. So that was a big clue. And then also apparently one of the boys had um, evidence of jaw disease, which apparently Edward V did suffer from. So can we call by... shoved under a staircase interred? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting, and that's not that's not where they are now. So, um, 
when I went to Westminster Abbey, they are buried there. And it's in a part of the chapel called the Innocence Corner. And um, they're buried there with a couple of Queen Anne's children. So I thought that was interesting. You know, they have buried them in Westminster Abbey as if they are the princes in the tower. And I feel like everyone just kind of wants to leave well enough alone at this point. Um, I mean, it's it pretty is, likely. It's likely, and it's are. also a really gruesome story. And Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And then the other thing that we saw in the tower was the spot where Henry VI is purported to have been murdered. Um, so if you listen to our episode on that, that's kind of it was kind of interesting to be standing in the room where apparently he was murdered while well, he was praying. So the interesting thing about that, though, and we talked a little bit about this while we were there, is that everything that I've read has always said that he was killed by a blow to the back of the head. And the sign there says he was strangled. Oh, I thought it said he was stabbed. Oh, stabbed. That's right. That's right. But it, it wasn't a conk on the back of the head. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I guess tower lore is that he was stabbed to death. But it was very interesting to see the spot where that allegedly took place. And um, the other big thing that we saw there is the spot where Anne Boleyn lost her head, which was pretty cool. Um, that memorial that, is, a, is an interesting one. It's an interesting design. Um, <laughs> it's a fountain with a glass pillow in the middle. It reminded like me a lot Cinderella? of Cinderella. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think we talked about this while we were there. The thing that really struck me is um, Tower Green is not that big. No. So you are standing in the spot directly underneath the – um, tower where she was most likely housed w- awaiting her execution and um, you know we talked about how she would have heard every hammer of the nail every every voice outside I mean you would be keenly aware of the fate that awaits you so that was like a little creepy almost just um, imagining what that would have been like um, yeah but and, yeah you know, I mean it's, it's not like she was laid on the grass either. So like there also would have been a scaffold that they had built. And so in that space, it would have seemed even smaller, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, cause you know, by all accounts, there was a crowd there. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know, that was really interesting. And then the other thing about Anne Boleyn that was cool is that the gate that we entered the tower in is the gate that she entered in for her coronation. So if you're a fan of Anne Boleyn, that's a pretty cool destination to check out. The tower in general, I think, is one of my favorites because it's so old and there's so many different phases of it that you can see and so much happened there. Um, and, and you're right, in not a very large space either. I mean, I was thinking about it, you know, you're walking through the royal quarters and it's, it's funny, they're calling it a palace in, in, during certain periods of time, but like the king is quite literally like living in the walls. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's very medieval, rudimentary. The dominant feature in almost every room is the fireplace, mm-hmm. which, you know, was necessary for warmth. And um, and they did have, really... uh, not to get into the weeds too much on this, but they did have essentially medieval versions of, like, toilets. Yeah, that surprised me. It did surprise me, and it, it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so highly recommend the tower if this is a, something that interests you because um, we've talked a lot about the players who were inhabiting the tower and conducting misdeeds there. So it was really interesting to go there, and then um, the other really interesting thing 
was Westminster Abbey that I did by myself. And um, I just wanted to run through the list of people that we have talked about who are buried there. Um, we talked about Henry the, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Edward Third. Um, he's buried there as is, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to have trouble remembering everybody. It was pretty crazy. Um, Queen Anne and her husband. And then I think the thing that struck me the most was the lady chapel, which was built by Henry the seventh and Henry the eighth. And almost the entire Tudor family is there with the exception of Henry the eighth. So I, that is something that I did not realize until I was standing on top of Edward the sixth. <laughs> grave and staring down Henry the seventh and Elizabeth of York and then off to the left you have Elizabeth and Mary Elizabeth the first and Mary the first are buried together which I thought was kind of an interesting choice oh, and then on the other side you have Mary Queen of Scots maybe even more interesting <laughs> more interesting well and so what I thought was really cool is that James the first commissioned both Elizabeth's tomb and Mary Queen of Scots tomb and Mary Queen of Scots has a fancier bigger more elaborate mm. tomb slightly but it is um fancier and that is interesting and on her grave there is a reference to the fact that she should have been queen of england so um you know we talked a lot about how she never saw him after he was a baby but clearly in death he felt the need to memorialize her that way which i had a little giggle where it said you know and you know this fleur-de-lis to represent her time as queen of france and um i forget what the symbol is of her time as queen of scots and then it was like and then the inscription that she should have been queen of england so that was kind of cool and then um mary margaret beaufort is buried there and um her um i guess sarcophagus we would call it um is yeah. very is very elaborate and henry the seventh had um her hands sc is sculpted in prayer by a very renowned florentine sculptor so it's it's really actually very beautiful and represented her enormous faith and then um so that was just you know it was really interesting to be walking through that and seeing all these people we've talked about especially in our most recent episodes um also Anne of Cleves is buried there and Neville is buried there so that was kind of fun. Didn't you say Richard the second as well? Richard the second yes thank you I knew there was someone we well just I just remember about. so you came out and you were very excited but you were also a little bit affronted because you felt that some of these rather important monarchs that we had just been discussing were a bit glossed over. They were so that was a little frustrating so I was looking, so Edward the Confessor is the big shrine inside. So if you don't know anything about Westminster Abbey, it was built by Edward the Confessor on top of a side of a church that was already there. And of course, you know, added to over the years to become what it is now. And the shrine of Edward the Confessor is the big uh, piece inside the abbey, which you, you can't even really see because it's so um, unstable and fragile that they kind of keep it walled off and then around his grave are the graves of Edward the first and his wife and Edward the first grave was not labeled so I couldn't find it um they only mentioned it as I had already walked past it and that was kind of frustrating to me and then you know Richard the third Richard the second's grave has a tiny little sign on it and you know we had just talked about him and his um deposition as we would call it so um, but what I thought was interesting was that Henry Bolingbroke, Henry the Fourth, um, 
or no, sorry, Henry V, son of Henry Bolingbroke, who took his crown, had Richard II buried at Westminster Abbey as a sign of respect. Um, and Henry V is also buried there. Pretty much every monarch up until George II is buried there with a few exceptions. So I like that they're all happy to show the respect once they're dead. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. Like a lot of people since then have been buried at St. George's Chapel in Windsor. And then, you know, Henry VIII is buried somewhere else. Um, I can't remember what all the exceptions are, but I, I actually was um, pretty struck by how many people are buried there and in, and in general I mean you're walking on the floor and you're walking over people's graves and we'll talk about this gentleman today but in the lady chapel behind the um, grave of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York is an air force chapel that's meant to memorialize um, air force servicemen who lost their lives in World War II and I was standing there, you know, looking at the time and thinking, oh, maybe I, I don't have really have time to, like, explore this chapel. And then I looked down and I was literally standing on top of Oliver Cromwell, who we will <laughs> talk about today. So um, I thought it was interesting that he's buried at Westminster Abbey and um, in a really strange spot. Um, I mean, a lot of people do seem to feel as though they just sort of stuck him in an available space. So um, really interesting stuff. That would be a great segue, although I know we're going to, we have a little bit of gossip to cover too, but I also noticed um, when we were walking around outside in that general complex, there's like Westminster Abbey and then the Houses of Parliament are right there. And there's a statue of Oliver Cromwell outside of Parliament and he's in what I saw was called Cromwell's Garden, which struck me as odd as a person who would seem to be, to me at least, someone you want to kind of shove under the rug of English history is so prominently celebrated on the grounds of Parliament and buried at Westminster Abbey. I mean, he was buried as essentially a king, but I, I do find that a bit interesting. So. Well, and it's funny, it's, uh, what, who, you know, what struck me as odd is who, who has an elaborate tomb you know, Edward I, like I said, I couldn't find it. Um, Richard II, Henry V, they're just kind of in these, like, you know, stone coffins, kind of, that, like, ring the tomb of Edward the Confessor. And then you have the Lady Chapel, which is this, like, elaborate, elaborate construction. I mean, it's beautiful. Um, and, you know, Edward... Um, Henry II and Elizabeth of York are in this like gilded cage basically as is Elizabeth and Mary and Mary Queen of Scots they have these really elaborate tombs and then Edward VI is just in the floor so you know he didn't yeah. get he didn't get anything fancy and really neither did Anne Queen Anne her her tomb wasn't that fancy either and um, so it's just kind of interesting to see what was considered appropriate at the time of each death. Um, you know, Anne of Cleves is kind of in, set into the wall of the center area that houses Edward the Confessor, and Anne Neville is kind of near her. Um, but, you know, you have to wonder, like, how come they're there? And, um, you know, where's Catherine Parr? You know, <laughs> she didn't get to be buried there. So it's kind of interesting to see how they decided who was buried there, and then just the sheer volume of notable British people over the years that are there. 
And then, of course, just really rich people as well. So anyway, I'm not going to go on and on about it, but if you find yourself in London, it's worth the $30 admission ticket. Um, I got a real kick out of it. So, and it was just so, it was just so timely with everything that we've been talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, I want to say that I wasn't disinterested. I had just already been once this year. So, um, that's why I didn't go back in with Claire. Um, okay. So we do have a little bit of gossip that I wanted to bring up because as much as I think, I don't want to dwell on the ickier aspects of this story. A pretty astounding development happened in the last few weeks with Andrew and his standing in the royal family. Um, because of this story that's been happening where he was friends with a man who is now dead, who was widely known to be a convicted pedophile and apparently still engaging in unsavory activities after his conviction. And Andrew has failed to properly distance himself from him and now is facing allegations that he himself partook in some sex trafficking. Um, and Andrew tried to give an interview on the BBC to exonerate himself and failed quite miserably. Um, and also, it turns out, didn't properly inform the queen that this was the course of action he was going to take. And so uh, his brother Charles and it's rumored his nephew William were both involved in the discussions and Andrew has been removed from public life. <laughs> As he should be. As he should have been maybe perhaps a while ago. And the reason I really want to talk about it is because not this idea... I mean, it's a little bit shocking that, you know, the Queen's favorite son has essentially been cut off from royal funding and royal duties, but the reasoning why they did this. It's not that they finally decided, oh, okay, this is bad. These allegations are bad. Your behavior was bad. It's more that he embarrass the queen in his attempt to exonerate himself and that's the the embarrassment is what can't be stood right and you and I have talked about this like even if if this all of this is true it's unlikely that Andrew thinks that he did anything wrong he clearly doesn't they gave him multiple opportunities to say you know what you know do you regret on behalf of the victims or whatever. And all he talked about was all the positive benefits he got from his relationship with this guy. So, so I mean, Andrew has no, no concept. <laughs> but it's, you know, we had talked about how he was continuing to escort the queen to public events. And I am interested to see how they handle Christmas. Mm. Um, because I don't know if they have the self-awareness to think that perhaps he should not join the family on the Christmas walk, but we shall see. Um, but I think, honestly, one of the things, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit, I know, um, that this the questions this has raised is the queen is 93 years old and people are wondering, is her judgment what it should be? Um, and I think that that's valid, but also I think, as you said, the analysis isn't going to be what you think it should be. It's not did a crime occur and should we care? It's, is this making us look bad? Right. There, there still doesn't seem to be an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, which is maybe in line with this, you know, never, what is it? Never complain, never explain. They're taking this to the 
full extent of that. And as we've talked about, perhaps they might want to reconsider that position in certain occasions. But right, the the feeling seems to be that you know Andrew is being punished because he's raised questions about the queen's ability to do her job and her state of mind and her competencies, and that cannot be allowed. Right. So that brought up another story where um, some, even some news outlets, I was reading this in the New York Times, so this is not just gossip at this point, um, were reporting that there was a plan in place where because of the role that Charles played in this situation with Andrew and was believed to have had a quite overt role in cutting Andrew off, um, as Charles has long been an advocate for a more streamlined monarchy, um, meaning, you know, Andrew and his daughters and Edward and his, like, you know, as you, as these new generations make the family ever bigger, you know, you, you start to have a hard line of who is in public duty and who isn't. Um, so Charles is involved in this scenario and reports start to come out that now there's a plan in place where should the queen reach her 95th birthday, Charles might step in as a regent and resume his, or assume, I should say, his duties as the future King Charles before the death of his mother. Now, the palace pretty quickly walked that back and said, hey, hey, no, no, that's not that's not happening. And I want to say they did explain that. There was a source on the record who came out and said, this is nonsense. And, and I actually think that that came from Charles's office. It did. And I think that that's not surprising. I think they would want to be the ones to say, whoa, whoa, <laughs> we aren't planning to usurp any crowns here. So... Um, but I, I do think that was interesting that that came up because that story has been floated a few times before, but this felt, felt really specific, you know, talking about the Queen's 95th birthday and the timing of it maybe wasn't surprising coming on the heels of the Andrew debacle. Um, but it seems like at the moment, the official word from the palace is that the Queen intends to fulfill her promise of being Queen until she dies. Yeah, um, I think, you know, we talk about every year, every birthday, this conversation kind of comes out, is the queen going to step aside? And I think that's just because she's so, she's reigned for so long and she's getting, you know, very close to 100. But I think as long as she's able to perform her duties, that isn't going to happen. And um, it's just, I think the interesting thing about this situation is this is a scandal that they can't ignore. And the response has been so slow mm-hmm. that, um, you know, you have to, you have to almost wonder if like this would be used as an excuse for Charles to seize power. But I think, I think Charles has enough power right now. I think he's taken over so much. I think he has plenty. And I think, so that's another angle from the Andrew mess is all of this was going down while Charles was on a royal tour in New Zealand and nobody noticed. Yeah. <laughs> because Andrew was sucking up all the headlines. So I'm sure Charles was thrilled about that. Um, but I think the idea, though, is not so much that this is a signal that the queen has sort of lost her grip. It's that Andrew has always been her blind spot and he's a weakness for her. So... He's now been removed from the equation. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure he'll show up at Christmas, but maybe he won't walk to church with them. We, we will find out. We will. Um, 
All right. Well, this is a great segue, actually. Let's talk about the first Charles. <laughs> oh, perfect. The reason why there is speculation as to whether Charles will take the name Charles um, should he become king uh, in the next decade or so. Um, and, okay, so we have been talking about kings and queens who are deposed. And up until now, I, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's been done with this attitude of sort of hold your nose and get rid of the king, right? You know, they, they didn't like what they were doing. Um, we talked about, um, I think, was it Edward the fourth who was like, you're making me do this. Don't make me do this. Um, and so there always seems to be this attitude of reluctance to depose the king. I mean, it's not a small thing to do, um, especially if you believe that the king has divine right to rule and it's obviously very disruptive to the natural order of things. Um, but today we're going to talk about a scenario where, it was not done in secret. It was not done seemingly reluctantly. It was done overtly and at the end of a long, drawn-out war. Um, but the government decided to kill the king. So that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, this was the first time that that happened in British history and it, the last. Yes. So Charles is the only... Charles I, I should say, is the only king to be beheaded. Um, obviously, queens have been beheaded. We've talked about that. They didn't have as much reluctance around that. Um, but killing the king was not something that was done lightly, and this is the last time that that happened. Um, and also, this larger story, I mean, they didn't just kill the king, they abolished the monarchy. So that didn't last forever. Obviously, we we're just talking about Queen Elizabeth, so clearly the monarchy comes back into play. Um, but this is a pretty big time of upheaval in British history. Um, and I want to say off the top that I structured this a little bit differently today, and this is not going to be essentially a straight bio of Charles I. I think he's a very interesting guy. I read a lot of books about him and, you know, he's widely, I think, renowned as this tyrant king, but um, all the bios I read about him actually had a very sympathetic angle towards him. And I, I think I agree with them. He didn't seem to be ultimately a bad guy. He's the only king of his time period who didn't take a mistress, who didn't cheat on his wife, who appeared to really love her. He had many children with her. He adored all of them. He seemed to be a really sensitive, nice guy who just really liked art. And I think that also contributed to his downfall. But I also don't think that his biography is the important part of his story. I think the important part of Charles's story and why he ultimately lost his head is because of the time into which he came to be king. And I think there were a lot of outside forces beyond his control. His reaction to them was not great. And I mean, I'm not saying he's blameless. He made a lot of bad decisions. But ultimately, I don't think, you know... Charles the man is as interesting as the world in which Charles lives. So I think I'm going to talk about it from the more macro lens today. Okay. Yeah. Um, because he was born into a time of really big transition for his country, for religion, and for the world and its relationship to monarchy. So I don't know that Charles was always destined to end up executed, but I think as king, 
it was highly unlikely that he would have been largely successful. I think maybe he was always destined to be a failure. Um, maybe he didn't need to lose his head though. <laughs> so I think that you can't really look at where he ended up and not consider the decisions and the world that was in place um, by his predecessors. And so we are going to talk a little bit about Elizabeth and about James, because who you actually mentioned a little bit earlier, um, because I think that their actions did not set Charles up very well for success. Um, and it's interesting to think about that in that way, because, you know, Elizabeth was a very powerful queen. I mean, her rule defined a whole era in England. Um, which sounds great until you kind of think about how it is that that would happen, right? So it's largely the force of her will that enabled her success. She was able to put off marriage. She was able to be this first domineering female queen that England had had. Um, and a lot of that came from this Tudor sensibility that she inherited from her father, Henry VIII. Um, but she's kind of an anomaly in the succession, right? Like she's bookended by these unstable and sort of, I'm calling them, quote, backup plan successions. I mean, Elizabeth herself wasn't a first choice. Right. Um, she was preceded by her brother and then the turbulent rule of her sister, Mary. And then she was followed by James I, who at the time when he came to the English throne was the King of Scotland and the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who Elizabeth had had executed for attempting to take her throne. So Allegedly. Allegedly. But again, her, the son of this woman would not seemingly be your first choice as right. heir. Right. Right. So Elizabeth has this defining era, but she's sort of a stable spot in the middle of flux. And um, I think all of that continues after her reign. And I don't really know if it's surprising that the Stuart succession ended in such abject failure. Um, so given his parentage, I don't think that James would have been England's first choice as king. Um, I mean, don't forget he was also Scott. So they, the British were a little xenophobic and racist, um, but he was the only legitimate heir left. And this came through his mother, yes, but he was the great grandson of Henry VII. So he's Elizabeth's cousin and he's the only one that's left to rule. So the Tudor line dies out and the Stuarts come to the throne. So James, who by that point has already ascended to the Scottish throne, he did that, I believe, um, was he like... A year old or something? I don't know. Um, he, was, he was, yeah, he was a baby. Yes, he was a baby. So he's been king of Scotland for quite a bit of time by the time he comes to be King James I of England. And he moves to England. Um, but his Scottish upbringing didn't quite prepare him for the nuances of English politics. So, And that's something that we also talked about with Margaret of Anjou. Yes. The British system was its own beast. It was, and I think James did never quite understood that or never tried to understand that, and unfortunately, he passed some of these tendencies on to his son, um, because in England particularly, Parliament had this very nuanced role. I mean, we see that in the dealings of Henry VIII and Elizabeth. Parliament is always there, and the, the king or queen has to take Parliament's will and actions into account at all times, and 
James didn't really seem willing to do that. And in fact, his personal beliefs on the right of kings seem in direct opposition to this idea that he would need to work with and acknowledge the will of parliament. So James was raised as a Protestant by this man who was a very harsh tutor. And basically what that what happened was that had the effect on James of guiding him into a belief that kings were called by God and they were only answerable to God. And not only did James believe this in a religious capacity, but he also extended this belief from church to state as well. So whereas Henry VIII had decided that, you know, as king, he was the head of the Church of England and he had a lot of reasons for doing that that had nothing to do with religion, he installed himself as the divine head of a church. James took this stance and then took it even farther than Henry had and decided that this authority that he held as king extended to the state as well. So his first parliament proclaimed him by inherent birthright and lawful succession, the inheritor of the imperial crown of England and Scotland. And there's a dangerous implication here in this wording of inherent birthright that implies that his title to the throne is above and beyond the law. So this is given to him by the fact that he's born into this role and instilled by God as king. And not just as head of the church, but he's head of state as well. Um, So this absolute divine rule over state leaves parliament out of the loop a bit, you know, at least theoretically, if not yet actually, but it didn't really endear James to the English. And at the same time, he's showing a very clear preference for Scottish nobles. So all these, you know, old guard English you know, nobles are looking at this Scottish king that's come to rule them, and they're not really happy about this. Um, now, to his credit, James's favoritism of the Scots was actually part of a plan that he had to unite the kingdoms of England and Scotland into this larger Great Britain. Um, but I mentioned before the English were pretty xenophobic, so they were pretty resistant to this idea of being one with Scotland. Um, Parliament feared that were this to happen, they would just become a provincial assembly under an absolute king of this larger territory. So they weren't really in favor. Um, and so this didn't happen in actuality. Um, England and Scotland still remain technically two separate kingdoms who just happen to be ruled by the same man. Um, But James pressed forward anyway with more of a symbolic union. So this is when we see the united crest with both the English lion and the Scottish unicorn coming to be and the introduction of the Union Jack flag. Um, So this is the political environment in which James is trying to impose this idea of divine kingship and use it to unite England and Scotland. But like I said, there's, of course, this religious element that has already been introduced in a way by Henry VIII, but James is taking it even farther. And his timing is terrible because let's take a look at the larger religious environment of the world at this time. You know, I think we've talked before about the Reformation where Catholicism is splitting into Catholicism and Protestantism, and everybody's arguing over the correct way to worship. And now we've had several years for this to sort of percolate and become even worse as 
the religious wars are devolving even further. So by 1588, Europe is fully mired in religious war. Protestant England is at war with Catholic Spain. Um, The Reformation on the continent is about to devolve further in the Holy Roman Empire, especially into the Thirty Years' War. So these bitter disputes over religion are everywhere. And the idea that the King of England is the head of religion starts to become a bit of a dangerous double-edged sword, whereas before it just meant, hey, I am the absolute religious authority of my country. Now, when everybody's fighting over the correct way to worship, it kind of opens this idea of like, if you're quarreling over over religion, you might actually be quarreling with the crown. And Mm. nobody wants to be quarreling with the crown. Oh boy. But if you think you're right, then maybe you don't care. So for a while, the Church of England actually seemed to exist at this kind of safe middle ground um, because we talked about this a little bit um, when we talked about Henry VIII's formation of it. It's almost a change in name only. So it's Protestant in doctrine, but it's still very Catholic in ceremony and dress. Essentially, they've changed the book a little bit, but they're practicing their religion the same way they always did. Um, But as the Reformation takes root even further, the conflict evolves from just Catholic versus Protestant to Catholic versus Protestant versus Protestant. (laughs) So divisions are opening up on the Protestant side, and the king's position as head of the church becomes a tougher role to navigate because you can call yourself a Protestant and head of a Protestant religion, but you're going to have multiple factions arguing over what you mean by that and whether you're telling the truth. Um, And that comes to be extremely important to keep in mind. So, so can I, can I just ask a question? So my understanding of the role, the reign of Queen Elizabeth was that it was a little stable for a little while on the religious front. Or is that not true? No, that is true. And then later in life, there were some, rumblings that are starting to occur. But I I really want to say that I don't think you can really overstate the fact that Henry before her and Elizabeth were successful based almost entirely on their ability to suppress dissent just by force of their personality. I mean, they were, I mean, we talked about this a little bit. They both had a bit of a tyrannical bent and they backed that up by actually holding to these positions. So there are rumblings and Elizabeth is a devout Protestant, but she and her archbishop managed to suppress for a time a bit of the religious dissent. But by the time she dies and James comes to the throne, those rumblings are coming to the surface again and you don't have a strong-willed leader to do that. Okay. So that's going to prove to be the downfall of the Stuarts. Um, So... Okay, like I'm saying, amidst this environment, there's religious rumblings starting to come up from wherever they've been shoved during the reign of Elizabeth. Um, James decides that, okay, he's come to the throne and he's going to be the man to heal this rift between Catholic and Protestant. This plan of his, you know, this, uh, this effort at peace sounds great, has pretty long-term ill effects for his son. Um, so he's, he does have some success, but they backfire in a way that maybe nobody really foresaw. So England makes peace with Spain. So Protestant England, Catholic Spain at peace for a time. Um, but this 
peace doesn't really make people back home very happy because now England's at not at war with Spain and Protestants back home are worrying that England is no longer going to be a champion of Protestantism on the continent. And then Catholics at home are really upset that the religious tolerance that they feel they need is not actually a term of the peace treaty. So nobody's happy about this. And everybody is just like, peace is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And what this actually leads to is the famous gunpowder gunpowder plot to blow up parliament. So Guy Fox, bunch of dynamite, the plan is to blow up the royal family and parliament. It is foiled, does not succeed, and there's no short-term ill effects from this, but it's a sign of more long-term effects to come, specifically what was called the Catholic myth. Um, so in reality, in England, Catholics are a small powerless minority faith. Like they're just people who want to worship in peace and they have no power. But there are some diehard Protestants who believe that English Catholicism and its very existence is actually a fifth column of this vast international conspiracy led by the Pope to convert Protestants and take away English freedoms. So I thought you were going to say the Illuminati. And basically, I mean, that's kind of what they believe in, right? Like, it's about as, as credible as that. Like, these Protestants somehow believe the existence of Catholics to mean that the Pope has a nefarious plan to turn them all Catholic and take away their freedom to worship as, pure, as Protestants. Um, and these Protestants were pejoratively, actually, known as Puritans, might sound familiar. Mm. Um, and they wanted the Church of England purged of these Popish elements and this whole undercurrent of Puritanism versus Catholics is going to be a huge factor in Charles's reign, and in fact, a huge factor in his eventual death. And then they um, all got on the Mayflower. Well, and so sailed to I, the United this States. Is where <laughs> I have to tell you. So I read one biography that I didn't end up using as much because it got really heavily into the nuances of some of the like religious conflicts, and. They, it was mentioning like the Puritan exports to first the continent and then to eventually America. And some of them actually returned and were a bit of a thorn in Charles's side. And um, so like there's this whole Puritan undercurrent happening and I'm like feeling really sympathetic for Charles, but I'm also like, wait, but my country was founded by these Puritans. Right, right. (laughs) It's actually really kind of funny. And um, I didn't really get into it in this um, discussion, but the offshoot of the Puritans and like the treatment of so-called witches and all of that was also really interesting. But I was like, "Eh, today's not the day to talk about witches, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, No, the Puritans were actually kind kind of funny because they were a bit fanatical. But for today's purposes, it's only important to know that they just really did not like the Catholics and they wanted to purge any instance of Catholicism or popery from the English religious life. So all of this is going down. And meanwhile, James decides that he's going to bring his ideas of a king's absolute monarchy and absolute authority back to Scotland. So this is all going down in England. And James is like, yeah, well, let's try this out in Scotland too. Well, the Scottish Kirk, as the church was known, did not react well to this. So James comes blowing in to Scotland. He introduces a new translation of the Bible. Um, You may have heard of it. It's called the King James Bible. Um, And he introduces this because 
he feels that it's a middle way between the Catholic translations and these translations that were favored by the Puritans that had the unfortunate uh, element of calling out the failures of kings, like all through the Bible. Like they're just pointing to it and like, this is why kings are terrible. And understandably, James felt affronted by this and decided everybody needed a new version of the Bible. It really wasn't very popular, but it actually stuck around and the King James Version of the Bible ended up having lasting implications for the English language. It's really funny, just as a side note. So I took in college a class studying the Bible as a historical text. Oh, I did that too. It was Um, interesting. And the one thing my professor said is, you know, whatever you do, we aren't touching the King James Bible. <laughs> she was like, the translations are horrible. It's it's one man's interpretation. It has like, he took stories and translations and just completely made them up. So she was like, that is not considered like a proper translation by biblical scholars, which I thought was kind of funny. I mean, so. unsurprising given what I just explained, like his motivations were right. not very pure. <laughs> but apparently has the most beautiful language. So that's funny what you mentioned about lasting impacts on the English language. Yeah, it really actually did a lot to standardize the English language, even though everybody hated it as a religious text from a linguistic standpoint, lasting value. So uh, just a side note for that. Many English Protestants wanted to adopt this plainer Protestantism that existed um, on the continent and in Scotland. So James pushing his religious preferences is going to lay a really bad foundation. Um, And I bring this up because the Scots had a very, they had a much more um, extreme version of the Reformation that came to Scotland than what happened further south. Um, So they're, they're, they're Protestants, much like much of England, but they're Protestants in a different way. And that's going to come into play under Charles's reign. So let's talk about Charles, because now I hopefully I've laid a bit of the foundation of his predecessors have left him with a political battleground, a religious battleground, and nobody's really solved the problem. They've had temporary pacts and solutions, but James especially has kind of stirred the pot in a way that Charles is going to have to come in and try to deal with, and um, we'll see that Charles doesn't quite have the temperament to do this. Um, So by the time his father died, he left a large family. He didn't resolve the debt that Elizabeth left from all the wars with Spain, and his favoritism of Scots are all leading to disaster with Parliament. And at this point, by the time he dies, James has all but abandoned the task of governance. He's kind of like washed his hands of this and said, whatever, I'm, you know, I'm the king and you can't stop me and I'm not going to deal with the minutia of everyday life. And so it's into this religious and political void that Charles is crowned king in 1626 and he inherits the imperial crown of Great Britain. Um, and I, I say it that way because he is inheriting this this rule of England and Scotland that James um, introduced. That continues with Charles. Um, But Charles, like many of the monarchs that we've talked about before, was not born to be king. He was second in line to his brother Henry, but Henry um, unfortunately died before James, and so Charles outlives him and becomes the new heir. 
He's born with a stutter and rickets, and he's left in Scotland to recuperate from both of these things and grow while his parents moved to England upon Elizabeth's death. Um, a lot of historians have kind of phrased this as his parents abandoning him because, you know, he's like the sickly second son. Um, but that's not really true. I think it's just that he wasn't the heir at the time, and they decided to leave the, their young son in Scotland to grow. This is also, like, how they did things back then. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think James was a tough father, but Charles always felt that he did love him. Um, And Charles, like I said, you know, he liked the fine things in life. He loved beauty, and he built this vast collection of old master paintings. Um, I think he was one of the best, like, the most uh, prolific collectors of English monarchs in history. Mm. Um, He's also, unfortunately perhaps, married a Catholic. Um, So he married the French princess Henrietta Maria, um, and this was after his negotiations with a Catholic Spanish princess fell through. So he was always going to marry a Catholic, which seems a bit questionable given the religious environment that I was talking about. But again, I really think you can't overstress this idea that James had and now his son have that they really can't make wrong decisions because they're they're enshrined as king by God. So, you know, it doesn't matter if parliament doesn't like that your wife is Catholic. If you're fine with it, that's okay. And he also felt that it would go a bit of a way towards smoothing these tensions between Protestant and Catholic. You know, he would obviously raise his children Protestant, but having a Catholic wife was a bit of a concession to, you know, maybe the Catholics in England and in France as well. Um, it didn't really work out that way, though, because the marriage didn't bring any sort of alliance or into conflict with France. In fact, pretty soon after this, England enters war with France. Um, and the Protestants feared the influence that a Catholic wife might have over a king. So where Charles is looking at this as, I'm going to raise my children Protestant and I'm going to be Protestant in the Protestant Church of England. Protestants are actually worried that she's going to be whispering in his ear with her, you know, Catholic evil ways. Mm. Um, And so maybe given all of this, a king with the more tyrannical bent of the Tudors, so the iron will of a Henry or Elizabeth, could have overcome all of this, you know, all the problems he inherited, all the problems he exacerbated and um, introduced himself. Um, But Charles's mistakes, and especially his stubbornness in the face of these mistakes, as well as his belief, like his father before him, in the absolute power of kings, just really led to disaster. Um, because Charles did have some problematic tendencies as king. I, I laid the groundwork of what was left for him as a mess, but I, I also want to call out that Charles caused a lot of his own downfall as well. Um, first, this belief in his divine right as king is in some ways even more extreme than James's had been. Um, you know, James is taking it even further than Henry VIII before him, but Charles has this emotional belief that his religion grants him this this right as king. And so his coronation service makes it extremely clear. Everybody was a bit taken aback um, because like his predecessors, he's crowned using the regalia of Edward the Confessor. But unlike his predecessors, he decides to actually use the relics during the ceremony as this kind of sacrament that he's making to this idea of monarchy. So by relics, would... do you mean like bones? No, it's like 
there were sandals that they would like, usually they would just touch them to the leg of the monarch as like a symbolic wearing of the sandals. Charles actually wore the sandals. Uh. And there's like an ivory comb that they would kind of like have, you know, and Charles used it to fix his hair after the anointment of the oil. So he's like actually using these old regalia of Edward and everybody's like, what? (laughs) He's the reason why you can't go in the shrine. I know. Who ruined it. (laughs) I know. Um, Yeah, he, he, everybody was a bit taken aback by how quite literally he decided to do this because at this point, remember, Edward the Confessor is a saint. Yes. But Charles is kind of viewing him as a sainted king. Interesting. Yeah. Um, And then there's his attitude to Parliament. So Charles starts his reign at war with France and Spain with a Catholic wife, but he doesn't have a tax in place to raise money for these wars. And this is because Parliament refused to raise one. They didn't want to fund more war, and they were grumpy about the wife because why marry a Catholic if she's not going to solve the problem of the fact that we're at war with France, right? So Charles saw Parliament as obstructing him and decided that in future he would rather rule without them. Like, if they're not going to help, why bother? Because after all, he's king with the authority of God, so who needs Parliament? Um, Like I've said so many times before, he didn't really have the temperate to back this up. Like, I could imagine Henry VIII deciding to make do without Parliament, and they were just so afraid of him that they would just kind of, you know, call his whatever threats he's made and then just kind of go forward. Charles I mean, Henry VIII good... would just drag them all into the tower and have them all executed before they knew what right. was going on. But Charles doesn't do this. He doesn't really have the stomach for this. I don't really go into it here, but he was really close with this man, um, Buckingham, who was a favorite of his father's. And Buckingham, on the way to Charles's downfall. Buckingham along the way gets blamed for a lot of what goes wrong and is executed and Charles is powerless essentially to stop it and he has to sign the death warrant for his friend. And he regretted that for the rest of his life. And I think that that played a big role in his lack of willpower against parliament because he didn't want to be the bad guy that he would have to be in order to defeat them. So like I said, he doesn't really have the the temperament to be this absolute ruler that he does believe that he is supposed to be, but he believes it in a way where he thinks everybody else should believe it too. So he's not really prepared for the sort of, I guess, the struggle of imposing this on others. Um, And also, like I've been saying too, the English monarchy is set up in a very unique way. So unlike his European counterparts who are also pushing the bounds of absolute monarchy, Charles lacks the legal authority to tax his subjects at will. So only parliament can vote in new revenue streams. So Charles can say he wants to do whatever he wants, but he doesn't have a way to pay for it. Um, But he does get a little creative, so his attorney general utilized this existing revenue stream called ship money, which was a levy that was traditionally imposed on port towns to raise vessels for the navy in times of war. Everybody was in support of this. You need ships in times of war. The king can decide to raise the money. But now the king is extending this tax beyond the port towns to inland counties, and he's imposing it at peacetime. So everybody's a little bit less rah-rah about this. 
And by 1634, he's using the ship money to produce a regular income without the need to gain parliamentary consent. Like this is funding like 90% of all the income that he needs to operate. Mm. But he's now taxing without parliamentary consent. So if we think about everything that we know about our history of talking about monarchy, this is not the way the English monarchy is run. The English monarchy is more of a system of checks and balances where the king rules, but parliament grants him the authority to rule. And that's not what's happening here. Charles is just kind of going his own way. So that's the political mistakes that Charles is making. Now he's going to make some religious mistakes as well because he decides that he'd like some religious innovation because there's not enough of that happening at the time. Um, by now, much of England is practicing this like stripped down, more fundamental version of Protestantism, much like the one that was practiced in the Scottish Kirk. But in the chapel royal, so meaning in the chapels where the king is worshiping, there's a more theatrical, opulent version still in place, so closer to the original Church of England, closer to its Catholic origins. Um, and Charles's Archbishop of Canterbury, a man called William Laud, decides that he wants to try to impose this more opulent version of Protestantism on the entire country. Um, and many people were actually kind of okay with this. You know, they were like, sure, you want us to go back to ceremony, no big deal. Then Charles and William Law decide to bring this to the Scots. This did not go over well. Like I said before, Reformation in Scotland had been way more radical, and the people were far less easygoing about a return to what they saw as dressed-up Catholicism. Um, and Charles doesn't really read the room. He decides to push through with this anyway because he, again, he feels that he's God-given and he pushes forward with a version of the English prayer book and presses it on the Scots with his own personal authority. Um, no consultation with Scottish Parliament, no consultation with the General Assembly of the Kirk. He just says, here's a new prayer book. This is what we're going to use. And a lot of the biographies I read of Charles kind of point to this as the beginning of his downfall because there was a pretty violent reaction in a lot of the churches. People are throwing stools. They're throwing the prayer book. Um, the people do not like this imposition that Charles is bringing to their preferred form of religion. And pretty soon this protest against this religious position of Charles turns political. So... In Edinburgh, noblemen and influential men draw up and sign this document that's known as the Covenant, which resists Charles and his evils. So they're not content to just protest in the church. They're actually writing a political document that calls Charles out for what they see as everything he's doing wrong. Um, and then it doesn't stop there. It's replicated across Scotland. And now the country is essentially controlled by what becomes known as Covenanters. Um, so sectarian conflict has come to British soil. Charles has basically introduced a religious split in his effort to impose his own religion upon his people. Um, and by 1640, his religious policies have brought about a full-blown crisis. Um, and this is happening mostly in Scotland, but in England, his opponents now are drawing strength from the problems over the border. Charles is weakened with the Scots, that's an opening for his opponents back at home. Mm. So then, after 11 years of ruling without them, Charles decides to recall Parliament. 
11 years. 11 years without a parliament. Oh my God. Yeah, although I should say that this first parliament that he calls lasted less than a month, so mm. <laughs> it didn't, didn't go well. Um, so by 1640, like I said, Charles is in full-blown crisis, and he needs money to suppress the Covenanters in Scotland, um, which, as I've been saying, only parliament can vote to raise. His ship money isn't doing the job anymore because now he's at war with Scots. But by now, Parliament, in the intervening 11 years, where they've just been sitting idly on their thumbs as the king decides he could do without them, Parliament has filled with opponents of Charles, most notably a man by the name of John Pym, who was a devout Protestant who believed in this Catholic myth that I mentioned before. So he believed that Charles's policies of church and state were the result of this Catholic conspiracy. Um, and he had used the 11 years since the last parliament to build the case against Charles. And now is his moment. He's ready to take action to curb royal power. Charles has given him a platform by recalling parliament. Unfortunately for Pym, Charles dissolves parliament after less than a month because he doesn't get the money that he wants to fight the Scots. And he's like, well, then what's the point? But in August of 1640, the Scottish army crosses into England near Newcastle, and they win their greatest ever victory on English soil, which I found to be a little ironic remembering Charles's father was a Scot, and it's under his son that the Scottish have their best ever victory on English soil. Uh, just that timing was a little funny to me. Um, but because of this, Charles is forced again to call Parliament in the face of this invasion, and this time he has to give Parliament what they want. So he's forced to surrender his ship money income, which is, again, his only regular source of income. So when it comes to his budget, Charles is now entirely at the mercy of Parliament. Hmm. He's actually not really in a great spot at this point. So, you know, he's had to involve Parliament. It's kind of backfired on him a little bit. So he has no other recourse. So in the summer of 1641, he actually travels to Edinburgh where he accepted and surrendered to Scottish religious revolution. He worshiped in the Kirk in the manner to which the Scots preferred. He agreed to abolish bishops and he formally filled the Scottish government with the leaders of this Covenanter army. And then he played some golf. <laughs> As you do. As you do. So meanwhile, while he is making nice with the Scots in England, religious divisions in the House of Commons are exploding between the Puritans under Pym and then another faction, the Episcopalians, who are sympathetic to Charles's more ceremonial style of religion. Um, so this division that's occurring in Parliament is not going to help Charles. Um, and I should maybe explain at this point, so the Puritans believe in this extremely stripped-down version of worship Episcopalians, it comes from the term of Latin for bishops, so they believe that bishops should be leaders in this service of the church. And, and I brought that up also because, so I went to Philadelphia a few weeks ago, and um, there's a church there where the woman leading the tour claimed that it was the founders of Episcopalianism, and the, the reason they formed was to break away from the Church of England because once they... Um, decided that, you know, they no longer wanted to be British. They didn't want to worship in the British church, and that's how we got Episcopalianism. So I found that a little interesting. Maybe the term was just already floating around by that hmm. point. I mean, the timing of this is about 100 years before that would have happened. So, um, 
But what it really means for today is that they just wanted bishops. But that's a side note that I found interesting. Hmm. Um, so Pym, this extreme Puritan, forced a vote in Parliament on the Grand Remonstrance, which was a document that was a condemnation of Charles's policies in state and church that named him as an unwitting agent of Catholic conspiracy. So this Catholic myth idea that Pym really bought into, he's now written it down in a document and had, char- had Parliament vote on it. Um, but what this does is basically implies that Charles is gullible to a dangerous degree, meaning that he could not be trusted to choose his own advisors or command his own troops. And essentially, Pym has used this religious conspiracy as a manifesto for constitutional and political revolution. So they're using this idea that poor Charles, unbeknownst to him, is a pawn in this Catholic conspiracy, but if he's dumb enough to let that happen, then he cannot rule England in the manner in which he's been doing. Very clever on the part of Pym. As I said, he's had 11 years to figure this out. Um, not so good for Charles. Hmm. It sounds because like he's now, not doing so good. No, because now what has started as some religious strife and some minor political squabbles is going to explode into full-blown civil war. So... Like I said, Parliament is bitterly divided. They've got these factions of Puritans, Episcopalians, or eventually they call themselves Presbyterians. And this vote on the Grand Remonstrance barely passed, but it did. And so Charles makes an error because rather than capitalize on his enemy's weakness, meaning they have support, but they don't have full-blown support at this point, he takes this episode of the Grand Remonstrance and decides to get his revenge because he's convinced, and actually he was probably correct, that some members of parliament had colluded with the Scottish invaders. So these covenanters, who are essentially the Puritan counterparts in Scotland, um, Charles believes that they were getting aid from members of parliament. Um, So he decides to arrest and try these five members of parliament that he singles out, um, including Pym, on charges of high treason. But this is where we really talk about being able to back up your words with action. So on January 4th of 1642, Charles strolls into parliament to arrest these traitors in the House of Commons, but they're not there. They've been tipped off and they've fled Westminster as Charles is entering from the land side. They've taken to the Thames by boat and fled. So he walks in and it's actually a pretty violent scene. You know, like Parliament's pretty boisterous. He's got his soldiers there. He's come to arrest these men and he doesn't do it. So Charles has essentially walked into a trap. In the eyes of many, he's shown himself as a violent tyrant in his attempt to arrest these men, but maybe even more dangerously, he's failed. So he appears weak and ineffective. I mean, image is everything, right? Mm. Um, And because of this, most of his remaining power has now evaporated. Um, His arrest attempt of Pym turns London entirely against him, and Charles um, is in a bit of an unfortunate spot. Um, However, he does have a following in the country where 
there's more resistance to the Puritan attack on the church. Um, like I said, most people were pretty okay with Charles's imposition of his own religion in England. Um, but what this means now is that the support for Charles and then this resistance to him in London means that Charles, rather than king of all of England, is just a leader of a faction in a civil war. Oh. And this is a civil war against most of Parliament and half of his people. So he's barely king of England, no longer king of Great Britain. Now, he is on paper, but in actuality, not so much. So this has escalated into full-blown civil war. And at the start, it's a war of religion. I mean, basically this comes about because there's an upset Puritan faction in Parliament that's unhappy with Charles and what they see as this Catholic conspiracy. But this Puritan faction figures, hey, why stop there? And the war becomes a fight over the right of the king to rule the army and govern as well. Because remember, in the Grand Remonstrance, they decided to take this idea of Charles being swept up in a Catholic conspiracy and make it so that it has repercussions for his ability to lead his people as king. And then, because they've escalated it into the political realm, it brings up the question of what's the ultimate aim of this war? Are they fighting to crush Charles entirely or are they merely fighting to bring him to the negotiating table and get what they want, which is the freedom to practice the religion that they prefer and maybe some broader powers for parliament? Um, one side of the parliamentary faction is kind of more favorable to Charles. They can't really conceive of an England without a king. Um, and more importantly, they're maybe a little bit more pragmatic about a potential outcome of this. They're afraid of the, any residual authority that Charles does have, because if they lose this battle, they're going to be hanged for high treason. I mean, for sure, they're going to be killed. Um, and religiously, this is the faction that's made up of Presbyterians who are those who do want to get rid of ceremony in the church and have it run instead by assemblies of clergy or what was called presbyteries. Um, and I want to be also clear that most of this factionism in Parliament is happening in the House of Commons. Okay. Um, so the House of Lords is more likely to be on the side of the royalists who are backing Charles. And are they like um, kind of staying out of it? No, because they're fighting with Charles, but they're not... They're not really the ones calling the shots here, and you'll see why in a second. Okay. Um, so the other side of this faction in the House of Commons are more extreme, and they believe that, first of all, negotiating a peace is not fully going to stop Charles in his, quote, tyrannical ways. Um, they've got to fully eliminate him as king. And this belief is informed by their religious conviction that there should be no human authority in religion at all or any even outward forms of worship. Um, so this is like this very strict form of Puritanism where you basically, maybe if you have a church, you're like going to an empty building to like sit and pray as you will. <laughs> like no bishops, no, no clergy, no nothing. Mm. Um, and these men are known as independents, separatists, or seekers. Um, and I just said men, but there were actually some female leaders in this movement um, because church was one of the few areas of public life where women could participate. Um, they're obviously not in parliament nor um, in the army that I'm about to talk about. Um, so by 1644, this infighting in parliament has produced a man 
named Oliver Cromwell as its leader. Um, he was a seeker who believed that God had revealed to him that Charles must be fully stopped. So Cromwell is not interested in negotiation. Cromwell is interested in complete abolishment of Charles. Um, and this independent faction created what was called the New Model Army in February of 1645. Uh, this was actually England's first professional army, paid and armed by parliament, Ooh. and organized with officers chosen by merit, not social standing. Interesting. Yeah. So Oliver Cromwell is a member of the House of Commons who emerges as a general in this army and does so based almost purely on his own abilities as general. So he's going to benefit from this concept of merit. By June of 1645, Charles's royalists battle Cromwell's parliamentarians, and they were decisively defeated. So the parliamentarians have won a battle. Um, I'm not going to get too into the nuances of the battle. I think much like the Wars of the Roses, um, when we talked about that, the more important elements are the outcomes. So Charles's army is defeated, and now the New Model Army, which um, is made up of men who believe Charles to be a tyrant and who also believe that the state has no authority in religion, have defeated their king. So what are they going to do now? I mean, for the people who are against them, this is actually a pretty terrifying prospect because there's no one left to stop them because they've got this powerful army, they've defeated the king, they're members of parliament... They are the authority. So this battle happens in June of 1645. Um, and for two years, Charles is imprisoned in parliament uh, or by parliament, I should say. So Because it's not until two years later that Charles and Cromwell meet. I think there are a few more battles, but nothing is really going to turn the tide of the way this goes. Um, and at this point in 1647, Army leaders come to Charles to offer him a deal. Um, he's now, like I said, Parliament's prisoner, but he's also convinced that he's in a position of power. Like I said, Charles is really stubborn. That's going to come to be part of his downfall. Um, he was a little bit right, though, at this point. He is in a favorable position because this factionism among his enemies has not stopped. So the Presbyterians and their who are now allied with the Scottish Covenanters, they want to impose their religion on all of England, right? Like, they're not interested in freedom of religion. They want theirs to be the dominant religion. Whereas these independents, led by Cromwell, they want the toleration of all forms of worship to be allowed. Um, now, when I say that, I want to clarify, they mean Protestant worship. Okay. So they're not talking about toleration for Catholics. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So both sides at this point need whatever remaining political legitimacy that Charles can offer. Because um, even now, as prisoner of parliament, he is still technically the king. So because his enemies are fighting, whichever one can say they have the king on their side can pretend to have more legitimacy to their position. Um, so the army offers these lenient terms to him. All they ask for is a guarantee of religious tolerance. And Charles says no. Instead, he decides to join forces with the Covenanters and the Presbyterians by promising them that he's going to impose their version of religion across Britain. He doesn't mean to do this, like he has no intention of following through on his word, but he promises it to them in exchange for their help. And this time, the Scots invade England at his invitation. Uh -oh. Yes, but it doesn't matter. 
like I said, at this point, there's not really much that's going to turn the tide. They don't defeat the new model army. By August 1648, Cromwell is in sole command of this army, and he's routed the Scots. They failed. Parliament, still divided, still has differences of opinion on how to handle Charles. The Presbyterians, who were allied with the Scots who have just been defeated, um, they're terrified of this new army and its radical, to them, views of tolerance. So they're seeking a peace with Charles because maybe if they can make peace with the king, then they can figure out what to do with this new army. But they don't really have a chance because the army seizes Charles on December 1st of 1648. And on December 6th, the army actually goes into the House of Commons and purges it of its Presbyterian majority. And with the remaining 50 independents, so the remaining 50 men who are in the House of Commons, declare themselves the supreme power in the land. And I think this is really important to show that Charles was essentially overtaken by a minority in his government. The, the independent faction or these men who want this religious tolerance are not the main faction in parliament. They just had the army at their disposal. So if you have the army, you have the power. Essentially, this is like a military coup. So they're declaring themselves to be the supreme power in the land. And Cromwell, who has always believed that negotiating with Charles was not the way forward, decides that Charles must, in fact, be punished for his huge crime, as Cromwell sees it, of starting a civil war on his own behalf. Now, I'm not sure if I can look at everything I've just talked about and entirely lay the blame for civil war on Charles's feet. Um, it's true that he did not help the situation and, in fact, invited a lot more religious and political strife than there may have needed to be, but it does take two sides to start a war. So I'm not really sure I believe with Cromwell in that scenario. Um, but nevertheless, in January of 1649, Charles is tried in Westminster Hall for high treason. Again, this begs the question, high treason against whom? Himself? Yeah, how is that possible? Yep. Uh, it's more of a sham um, because Charles recognizes neither the authority nor the legality of the court. Um, but again, the army is in firm control of this, and the verdict is a foregone conclusion. Um, Charles is ordered to die by beheading. I mean, this was never really in question. Um, it didn't matter whether they had legitimate charges against him. It was just a formality to say that they had tried him. Um, and on January 30th of 1649, Charles was publicly executed on the street outside of Whitehall, um, which I think is really important. Like I said, this is not a you know, dead of night, conk on the head or strangulation or smothering. They build a scaffold on the street and execute the king in full view of the public. Hmm. Uh, and three months later, on March 17th of 1649, the House of Commons passed an act abolishing the office of king and the imperial crown was smashed. So at this point, England has decided... We're not a monarchy. We don't want a king. And I didn't really get into the rest of this story. So basically the rest of Cromwell's story, um, it's unsurprisingly doesn't end as pure of heart. Cromwell decides he likes power and basically operates as well as a king. Um, in fact, as you mentioned earlier, he's buried in Westminster Abbey as a king. Um, but he's a king killer. And uh, England doesn't go very long before it decides to reinstate a king, and they do so with Charles's son, Charles II. 
wasn't he basically invited back because... Yes, because I didn't talk at all, really, about the effects of his family on the Civil War. But like I said, he had a lot of children with his wife. And um, by the time the Civil War happens, they're, some of them are pretty grown. So um, Charles, his son Charles, and a few of his other children um, flee to France. A few of them, like the younger ones, are essentially held by his enemies. Um, he's allowed to see them like briefly before he dies. But yeah, most of them flee to France. So that's where Charles II is hanging out while all of this is going down. Hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting story. It really is. And I wanted to frame it this way because, like I said, I, I had always thought, you know, it's always kind of presented like the English Civil War. Well, here in America, obviously, we have a different understanding of the term civil war. So oftentimes the English civil war can get a bit brushed aside. But I was always under the impression that these men really felt that they had no choice and that Charles was like, you know, a quote, bad man. Right. (laughs) But he's not. And he, I think he's just a victim of circumstances of religious and political strife and turmoil, and he just does not have the temperament to successfully deal with this. Right. Like I was it's thinking, like bad decision making. He does have a lot of bad decision making, and I found myself thinking while I was reading about him, you know, putting Elizabeth or Henry or you know any other stronger-willed monarch in his place, and you know maybe they would have also come to a bad end, or maybe not. I mean, or maybe they would have just delayed this for another century, but it's actually really interesting. Yeah, and what, what I find perhaps the most interesting is how short-lived this outcome was. That, you know, it's really important, I think, to point out that this war was won by a minority in government. And so I think once Cromwell proved a disappointment and once he died everyone left decided, you know what, like, let's just go back to the way it was. And I didn't really mention it, but when they signed his death warrant, there's pretty compelling evidence that Cromwell strong-armed a lot of men into signing it. And a few people actually erased their names because they didn't want to be on the document. Hmm. And also the man who was like the royal executioner refused to do it. Um, But then I think given how cleanly Charles was executed. They think it probably was the same guy. He just didn't want to be publicly known as executing the king. Yeah, I heard that they guaranteed anonymity. Yeah, like people were not okay with doing this, or most people weren't, but a few people were, and they were the ones that prevailed. Mm. But it's so astounding to me how a quarrel over the proper way to, to worship escalates into something like this. Well, like we've talked a lot about, you know, you, the ripple effect of Henry VIII's divorce from the Catholic Church. Is, this is a ripple effect. It's sure. still being felt today, and yeah. it it caused a lot of ongoing damage well after he was gone. Yeah, he got a king beheaded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that was an interesting story. I think it's just like kind of fascinating. Um, so, and then when he died, so he's not buried at Westminster Abbey. Side note, um, 
I um, but he he is buried at St. George's Chapel in Windsor, and I don't know if that's because of the circumstances of his death. They didn't want to put him in Westminster Abbey. Or... I don't remember. I did read about this. Um, I don't quite remember the circumstances, and I don't actually even remember if he was originally buried there. I think they might have moved his body at one point. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I might be remembering that wrong. Um, I read a couple good biographies on him, um, but I actually ended up framing this more with a, a huge debt to the monarchy documentary by David Starkey because I thought that he did a really good job of bringing in the larger like macro elements to this story. And um, the biographies I read got, like I said, a little bit bogged down in certain episodes of this, like there was something called the Bishop's Wars and, you know, there's a, a million parliaments and like, you know, it's all kind of the same story again and again and again. Like Charles calls parliament, doesn't get what he wants, pisses off the parliament. And then everybody's like just continuing to feel strongly that the other side is in the wrong. And ultimately what, ultimately what happens is like, there's just a back and forth of Charles versus Parliament, and they've just decided that he's a tyrant. And and it's so funny because I I read this story and I think of what he's truly trying to impose on them. And I mean, I think I'm reading this from a 21st century lens, right? Like trying to impose a certain style of religion, you're almost just like, whatever, like just, you know, do it in practice and then have your own, but we can't really underestimate the importance of religion in these people's lives. And so maybe for them, that was a truly tyrannical act to try to come in and tell them how to worship. Well, yeah. I mean, the role of religion was much larger in their lives and in like the everyday person, um, for sure. All right. Well, um, we haven't decided who we're going to cover next time. (laughs) Um, No, I had an idea actually for a lighter episode. Oh, okay. Maybe we'll do that. I'll mention that to you offline. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do that. So TBD. Um, but, um, as always, let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any suggestions. We're always open to it. And until next time. Until then. Bye. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie, and me, Claire, and our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.